This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, how do you tell a good story, a good scary story? Canadian horror novelist Craig shares his secrets on how to tell the most engaging and terrifying stories. He actually has three pen names, so it's kind of like talking to three people, but he's strangely normal for a person who writes such dark and scary things. It's amazing insight into how people can use horror to tell a good story, and if you ever wanted to learn how to be a writer, this is your ticket right here. Edgar Wright, the man behind Shaun of the Dead, is back with Last Night in Soho. Steve Stebbing reviews the director's first horror film. Stemming dives into more horror movies and some that are not so spooky as well on what the hell should we watch this weekend. And are you okay with trees and stinky plants? This is the Shift Podcast. Let's do a Halloween weekend are you okay? Are you okay with trees. Yeah. Subtle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of need them. You like trees? Yeah. Trees are I cool. Like them at Christmas time. I like them I'm a big time. fan of, of wood. Okay. That's a too easy. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I kind of <laughs> thought I would create some contrast from last night. <laughs> It's too easy. Well, if you want to find out what, in case you missed it, sounds like on Sunday now, I think we just, we know. Um, <laughs> we'll probably oh. be, um, you're not going to want to miss Sunday's show. Let's just leave yeah. it there. Are you okay with trees? Well, we need teas. That's a typo. For a lot of things. Air paper, something to sit under while you write poetry. Pictures to post on Instagram. A lot of things grow on trees. Unfortunately, money does not. But a British radio seems to radio something seems to see, think radio host? something. Radio host. That's a typo. Seems to think something very heavy grows on trees. Presenter Mike Graham invited Insulate Britain's spokesperson Cameron Ford onto the talk radio breakfast show. Insulate is the Insulate. environmental act. Oh, Insulate like is insulation. the environmental activist yeah. group. Thank you. Which just resumed roadblock protests demanding action from the government on home insulation to cut domestic energy waste. Ford had been invited onto the program to discuss Insulate, Britain's latest protest action, and wow. Morning, Mike. Oh, hello. What are you glued to, Cameron? Uh, just your screen, unfortunately. Unfortunately. What do you do for a living, well, Cameron? I'm a carpenter. A carpenter, right. So how safe is that for the climate? Well, I work with timber, which is a much more sustainable material rather than concrete. I also but you work with trees off. that have been cut down then, don't you? It's a sustainable building practice. How is it sustainable if you're killing trees? Because it's regenerative, you can grow trees. Right. Well, you can, you can grow all sorts of things, can't you? Well, you can't grow concrete. You can. See you, Cameron. Cheerio. That was Cameron. Uh, he grows trees and then cuts them down and then makes things from them. Brilliant. Marvellous. I don't think I ever want to talk to any of those people. Wow. Okay. So in case you missed it, one more little snippet from that. Here it is. Well, you can, you can grow all sorts of things, can't you? Well, you can't grow concrete. You can. Hmm. Huh. Oh. Interesting. Yeah, you can. Now, um... If ever there was a 
really great sustainable job, it would be something like Carpenter. I think that's yeah, yeah. pretty good. Um, car, uh, concrete does not grow on trees, in case you're wondering. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, technically, it grows in the form of lava, and then it turns into the right <laughs> yeah. mineral formula of rocks. <laughs> Yeah, cause like- and then over the course of millions of years, it gets compressed and ground together with tectonic plates moving to make the right mixture of all the minerals involved in the rocks. So technically, yeah, the you host, can grow concrete. The guy makes it sound like, you know, I can just go home and grow a little concrete garden in my backyard. Yeah. It's amazing. Presented by Graham described the segment as proper news with a headline that said this. Insulate Britain activist freezes on air and is cut off after a minute of humiliating clip uh here's our favorite reaction to all of this on twitter from molly goodfellow me emailing gardeners question time i've been watering my concrete for weeks but it's just not thriving do you have any advice (laughs) (laughs) you might need a cement mixer love it don't forget start with lava You'll be fine. Cool. Launching the Halloween weekend with Are You Okay? How about another botanical story for you? This one's not about growing concrete, though. Are you okay with plants? I have one plant. It's a cactus, and I love it. It's easy, and it looks I have multiples of plants. One kind of plant. They are pineapples, and I love it. I don't have any plants. Um, I like plants, uh, but I like other people's plants. I don't trust myself to take care of them. I don't want to kill plants. That's not nice. It's responsible. They're like kids, right? They're nice to have for a little while and give them back to their parents. Yeah. (laughs) Do you find the need to garden, like the urge? Are you a caretaker of plants deep in your heart? Do you love to watch them grow? Well, one plant just bloomed for the first time in decades, and people are very excited about it, popping up yet again. Let's go look at a penis plant. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Yes, the penis plant. No joking. That's what it's called. It's also known as the corpse plant, and it does smell like a dead body more commonly known as the corpse plant, just for saying. Um, The uh, flower blossoms very rarely, and this is just the third time one has ever blossomed in Europe. This particular penis plant is located in Leiden Hortus Botanicus in the Netherlands. Botanists call this flower... Amormorphophallus decius silvae. Rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Smooth. However, when it's blossomed, people call it a penis plant because it looks like anybody, anybody. A wonder. A penis. I wonder. This flower attracts flies and other insects due to its strong smell. It's also huge. This phallic part of the plant can reach a height of over six feet. Is it really six feet, or is it more like yes. four and a half feet? And they just say it's six feet. Uh, it's it's just as long as it's not cold in the room, it's actually seven All right. feet. Okay. It takes seven years for the plant to bloom in its natural environment, which is the Indonesian island of Java. Well, here is YouTuber Yoga and the plant with ruse getting very excited about the penis plant. 
Uh, try to count the unintentional innuendos in this clip. Let's go look at a penis plant. <laughs> this one finally opened in the Botanic Gardens in Leiden, where I volunteer. And it's a beautiful, beautiful flower. It's the Amorphophallus decus sylvae. And it's very high up on a stem. As you can see, it's very tall with a very narrow stem and then the flower at the top. It didn't smell very bad yet, but it got more intense in the afternoon. And the pattern on the stem is actually beautiful. Look at that. Don't touch this when you don't work here, by the way, <laughs> just to make sure. There's a little ladder next to it to look into it because it's so tall. So that's where I filmed this from to show you guys a little bit more up close. And the back of the flower is also beautiful. It's beautifully ribbed. Highly recommend going to see it. Uh, it was, uh, I think it was last year, two years ago in Vancouver, there was one. And so it also bloomed. The photos are staggering. This thing is big and tall. It's amazing. And, um, and, uh, this is, uh, this is, um, this is where Shane makes it weird, man. <laughs> Happy Always. Halloween. Happy Halloween. This is the Shift Podcast. Would it be Halloween if you didn't watch at least one scary movie or read one scary book? I don't think it would be, but there are people who do this all year long. They love the storylines. They love all the pieces around it. I have shared with you here, all of the Shift Heads who listen, Scary Movies and I, we do not get along, man. They spook me out. My imagination goes wild. I can't imagine living in it creating it it's amazing to me and a little bit weird that's why we've invited craig davidson author here um on the shift craig you write short stories and novels there's a long list of them maybe help us as you introduce yourself here help us understand what it is you love to do uh, well thanks for having me first of all shane i appreciate it um you know i out my party line on this is that uh I grew up reading, I, I'm a child of the 80s. So, you know, um, that was a huge horror boom ushered in by Stephen King. And, uh, you know, there were lots of practitioners who were kind of obviously doing horror prior to King. Um, but I feel like uh, in terms of the publishing world, it really came alive to this notion of, of written horror anyways, because I think up until King... Uh, you know, they were sort of these books that you would find, uh, you know, at the dime store or you'd find at the spinning rack at the, um, at the, at the, at the pharmacy. And I love those, but it was sort of seen as sort of a, I don't know, a sort of a lower class kind of, um, genre. And, and I think it's always still been like a, a, definitely a genre that is, um, what would you say? It's sort of, you know, it's not a lower class genre, but 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 it's definitely one that is underappreciated, I think. So and then Stephen King came along and obviously his you, in the 80s, you couldn't go walk down the street without getting hit in the head with a Stephen King book. Right. It just seemed like they were everywhere. And so I, you know, grew up reading him and my parents sort of were happy to see me just reading. I don't think they were um, they weren't all that concerned what I was reading so long as I was reading. So I think I got exposed to him quite early, um, got a contact tie off of him and moved on from him to like Clive Barker, Anne Rice, Shirley Jackson, you know, Dean Koontz, Robert R. McCammon, the, you know, and then just went deeper and deeper down that particular rabbit hole. And then when it came to actually writing myself, I was at a at an MA program out East. And um, at the time it was not really considered at school that you could, you know, write a horror book. 
it was sort of expected that you would write good, crunchy Canadian yeah. literature, whatever that is. Write something people uh, will enjoy. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if it can involve like a frosty uh, wheat field or, you know, a bike. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably a sunrise like, somewhere. Well, yeah, sunrise is good. Frost on the pump handle, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so I think that's changed. You know, I, I know now I talk to people who are in, in the same similar programs and definitely they've opened it up to allow, you know, genre writing, which thank goodness. But at the time that was not really... Um, it does sound like one of those Canadian heritage moments, those TV commercials you used to see, like the loon. I just heard a <laughs> loon right. in my head. I heard yeah. a loon sound effect go off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and and so I, my my first books were sort of, I guess, Canadian literary. But then um, it was actually here in Toronto. I was here with my uh, then girlfriend, now wife, and we went to the ROM, and uh, it was like this exhibit on water you know, how human beings use water, the things that are in water. And there was this little alcove off to the side, a darkened sort of playing a, some kind of a film loop. And I'm always a, attracted to darkened alcoves, you know? So I wandered over there watching, it was, it was tapeworms, ultimately. It was, it was, you know, how tapeworms, you know, uh, sort of evolve and grow and how they're sort of these ultimate survivors. And something in my, you know, primal hindbrain started churning over this notion of, of those creatures and uh, the, the sort of, horrific beauty that I think they have. And it wasn't too long before an idea sort of uh, jumped into my head. And then I, yeah. And then, and then I wrote it. And I, when I sent it to my agent, you know, who had taken me on as a, you know, as a literary writer, I was expecting him to say, you know, you, you should, you should really check yourself into the the closest, yeah. uh, you know, mental health Are facility. you okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he did say that, yeah, yeah. but he also said, this is pretty good. Oh, and good. maybe, you know, maybe, maybe we can do something with this. And, and yeah, and that's sort of um, how my sort of second career as a writer of um, horror fiction started. The, the early statement about horror being, you know, just, that lower brow thing, Stephen King seemed to take some real depth to character and some depth to storyline. Like when you got into a Stephen King, the reason why that person was IA losing their mind, they, I'm, I'm not big on horror. Like they scare me. Like you, this is why it's fascinating to talk to you is because they truly scare me. Like I'm, I am the perfect uh, reader because I so perfect. I can't read it because it truly sells it to me. But Stephen King has taken and he's brought in this ability to add the history to the reasons why they do the things they do. And they're often quite relatable. And so he added mm -hmm. a real depth to it. So that seems to have changed the movies. Of course, there's the silly ones, but it's changed the movies. It's changed the depth to it. Does that get exciting for you when you can not only write about the tapeworms, but the human experience around it as well? Yeah, I think you're so right in, in terms of... Um you know, my reading is really broad and I'm, I'm sure yours is as well. I mean, there's certain things we don't read as much of you clearly uh, as much horror, but you know, when, when, it, when, it, you know, having read broadly and, and, you know, loved all sorts of literature, you really do come back to the, the, the sense that like a good writing is good writing, whether it's, you know, thriller writing or crime writing or you know, romance writing, or, you know, what you would consider just your, your more sort of, crunchy literary writing and horror is no different you know the 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 great practitioners of horror and the great sort of archetypal uh sort of classic horror novels and stories are uh, and in my opinion anyways are every bit as good as 
you know, the classics from other uh, non-genre places, you know, and Stephen King, I think what really drew me to him again is, is, is it was less that he scared me, although obviously clearly he did. Um, one, there are many sort of ways in which like the techniques of fiction or the techniques specifically of horror fiction. One of the main things is if you don't, if you don't give a damn about the characters, you probably don't care what's going to happen to That's you. Right. You know, and there's so many movies that we've watched that really they don't spend any time sort of developing the characters. So when their grisly end is met, it's sort of less, well, it's just throw another log on the fire really. Yeah. Uh, and Stephen King and, and Barker and Rice. Uh, and I'm just, I'm just speaking about the ones who I grew up reading. Yeah. Well, it's like the blonde with the music, right? In the movies, it's when you see the blonde who's walking into the dark while the music is playing, that's the dis- uh, disposable character. And everyone knows it's a disposable character now. Yes, right? exactly. Or the, the, the red shirts in Star Trek, it was always understood. That's right. If you're wearing a red shirt, you're not coming you were, back. Exactly. You're not coming back from from the journey. So, and this, yeah. And this, so, I mean, I think one thing that I've learned uh, and you know, this is in any fiction, uh, you know, sort of start with character and, and develop those characters. And so that when they become in jeopardy or in peril, a, you understand them a little bit more and B you really ultimately hopefully care what, what's happening to them. And, and, and when they do pass away as, so often they do at a horror narrative, you know, th- there, there is a sense of, of loss and that, um, and, and that the reader, the reader cares. Right. So, uh, and obviously Stephen King did that. And another thing King did really well is I, I think he's one of the best writers we have on, on childhood. You know, he seems to understand in some way, remember really how, how kids think, which when you, when, if you sit and think about it, Shane, I certainly tried to think about it. Mm. I, I don't know. No. I, I don't, you know, we have a nine-year-old son and sometimes he says things that I, I almost have a shadow self, yeah. an old me that sort of, Oh, I sort of vaguely remember mm-hmm. maybe having thoughts like that, but I can't, I can't access it. No. You know, there, there wall has been built up between adulthood and childhood, but, but Stephen King, there seems to be bricks missing in that wall and you can see through. Yeah. Well, and you're absolutely right too. Cause when your kids do something, you'll be like, ah, oh, look, I remember when I was that age, we've all said that as parents. Right. Yes. But then if you said to me, Hey, what was it like to be 12? I'd be like, mm-hmm. Couldn't tell you. Like I, right. So you're absolutely right. I find that absolutely fascinating here. Now you're one of the names that you write while you write by multiple names, not only like Craig Davidson, but Nick Cutter, which is creepy by the way, totally creepy. Um, And, and you've written all kinds of things. There's this gap of every, every couple of years in every sort of pseudonym that is offset by the other name. So I feel like it's a hat that you sort of switch. You're like, I'm going to be, you know, the dad today, dad writer. And by the way, this is the dark guy who likes to walk around in alleyways at nighttime. Like, I don't know. How does it work for you? Well, yeah, that's, I guess that's a question that that a lot of people who write under a pen name, especially two really diverse kind of sets of, of writing or what would seem on the surface to be really different. Um, you know, the, the idea of a hat, you know, do I get up and do I put on my, my psychopath's hat or my, you know, sort of regular sort of quotidian writer's hat. And it's not really, I, I think ultimately the, 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 the thing that separates is, is the idea that, that flashes into your brain pan and, you know, kind of immediately, or at least I do. Okay. This is one that would probably go down the Craig Davidson stream and, oh, okay. you know, sort of flow that way Char- with character it. Character appropriate. Form. Character appropriate, you know, sort of career. I mean, one of the one things I, I realized, Shane, is, 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 is you talked about Nick Cutter. And, um, you know, I, when I originally submitted that book, I thought it was going to come out under my own name. I 
that was kind of, I wouldn't say that was my hope. I just assumed that that was going to be the case. But, you know, eventually my agent talked to my, the person who would, the publisher, and they decided, we all decided sort of together that it would be best to sort of come up with this pen name, which my son's name is Nicholas. And, uh, That's funny. you know, Cutter, well, we'll see if he, if he finds the honorific so clever <laughs> or whatever, but, uh, you know, well, my son's name other- is Carter. And I actually, when I was in Sudbury, used the name Carter on the radio. So let's hope that it works out. <laughs> Hi. Well, I and mean, you do, you're doing it because you, you, you know, you love your, your children ultimately. But, um, so, but the, I, the real reason is because ultimately some readers just can't really the assumption anyways uh, of publishers is that readers can't fix in their head this idea that one individual could write these two yeah. sort of seemingly diametrically opposed books. Uh, and and so you had to separate the camps ultimately. So there's all been all sorts of reasons why people have come up with pen names, you know, like J.K. Rowling wrote under, oh, I forget the name that she, uh, Robert Galbraith. Mm-hmm. But that's mainly, I think, because she wanted to sell those those mystery books and and, you know, basically not think that she would what people were buying them because they she was jk rowling right. she wanted to sort of have them bought because they were you know good books and stephen king ended up taking robert bachman because he was just so busy mm-hmm. you know he was so prolific and they were saying you know a book a year is enough and you're going to sort of dilute your own brand but he was just i think just in this fever of creativity that he he just didn't want to do that so um you know came up with a pen name and his own son joe hill uh, didn't want to publish under Joe King because obviously he felt like he wanted to feel that his books were being recognized for his own writing and his own talent, not because he was, you know, the old man's kid. Yeah, it's amazing. And uh, one of the things we go through on the radio, Craig, is that, you know, it's speaking into listening, right? And that's how I hear what you say, right? Is that when people are fans of book A, but book B is a completely different style or topic or whatever, that we often forget that, the people who we're creating for have their own place that they are listening from. And mm-hmm. we need to allow people that space to, to listen from there. And how do you create that? So that's, that's, that resonates with me very, very deeply. I have so many questions. This could go on for days. Aside from the fact that um, you're from St. Catharines, like you grew up in St. Catharines. And I have to ask yeah. you, where in St. Catharines did you grow up? Where did we, we grew up in, uh, just off Martindale Road on Sarah Court, so not not too far away from Port Dalhousie, where my parents live to this day. Okay, so you were on the other side. So I lived. I did radio there. I I did, oh, did I did you? the morning show at the White House of Rock. Um, oh, at ninety seven seven. Yeah, and so I um, I was um, I was there seventeen eighteen years ago, and we uh, I lived over on Jennifer Crescent, so I was on the other side by the canal. Um, yeah. Okay. Of course. Right. So um, it was just yeah. funny. And Brendan Kelly, our technical producer, grew up in St. Catharines as well. And um, and so there's a we have this we have a love affair with the Niagara Peninsula here on the shift. But then you did spend time in Calgary, back in Toronto. So um, you 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 are a Canadian through and through, as I like to say it, as you well traveled about. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So let's um, let's boil down a couple of things. Sure. What makes a scary book because if i was you my imagine yeah. would my imagination would go wild and i would hear a bump in the night and i would a either write it down because i'm like that's a good idea or b <laughs> i would be like i know how bad this can go because i wrote three books about it so i'm just going to cover up my head with my pillow <laughs> well you know 
I've, you know, there are a couple ways you can go with an answer to this, but um, one thing is, is that, you know, it's like flavors of ice cream. What scares you would not scare me or what scares me might seem not that way to you. My, my wife is uh, Nazis and uh, demons are her like bugaboos. Mine are probably sharks and uh, I don't know, a, cla- a claustrophobia probably. I would say a little bit of that. So, so the wait, 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 wait. So the guy who writes okay. the scary movies about all these terrible things happening to people, an elevator is what gets you? That seems weird to me. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, elevators, I'm, I'm okay. But weirdly, though, I think it's it's like they say sometimes allergies, you know, sort of develop as you get older. <clears throat> I think phobias probably do the same thing. I, I, I feel like I was not a, a worried about those things when I was younger, and it's sort of just something that – I mean, also like a fears. My, I have a very strong fear of like for my children now. Like for example, when I read Pet Cemetery the first time, as a teenager, yep. I just thought, oh, this is creepy and gross, and things are coming back from the dead. But when I read it as a father, I read it as like this terrible sense of a, a parent would do anything to rescue his his or her child. Right. You know, so so you know, not only do our fears develop as we develop our going back to material that we read as a kid one way. Now we sort of look at it with a totally different set of fears. But um, my sense has always been to focus on, you know, if, if like I wrote a book about like undersea, you know, weighed like a research station down at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. So you're really dealing with like pressure, claustrophobia, um, you know, and I introduced a few other elements, but the, the danger is to, to be like, well, I'm just going to do everything. I'm going to have a, a shark attack and it's actually a demon shark. And then um, there's a vortex to hell. And, you know, it's like, you're trying to like please all customers and ultimately like that, that generally doesn't work. And, um, and there are different, like just styles of horror. Like my buddy, Andrew Piper here in Toronto, I would say he writes more Gothic thrillery sort of suspense stuff. I probably write more what would be considered body horror, um, you know, so so like Cronenbergian type horror, and there's other people who write, um, you know, possession horror. So there's all sorts of, of of different kind of, or you know, sort of that that ghost story. Some people love ghost stories. You know, I've never really written a particularly good ghost story, hmm. but I know there are people who like that's all they read or zombie hmm. stuff, for example. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, some of the simple elemental tricks, if you want to call them that, techniques are you take one of the simplest ones, and we could name a million books and stories that go by this is you take a group of people with conflicting personalities, you isolate them somehow, you introduce some exterior threat and you just watch things go to hell. Sounds like Thanksgiving at most houses with families. <laughs> well, there've been many, uh, you're right. That's more like uh, urban kind of a, a social order. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you look at like Lord of the Flies, yep. for example, not, some people wouldn't call that horror, but The Shining. Well, you can see it uh, with uh, even um, the TV show Survivor. Absolutely. absolutely. You know, and it, it ultimately becomes The Walking Dead's another good one where where ultimately the, the or The Mist, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the exterior threat sort of ultimately is, is only there to put a compression on the people and make them sort of embrace their darkest sort of primal instincts. So it's really more about putting the characters in a crucible and and the real horror is things that people will do to one another rather than, uh, you know, there's these vampires out there, you know, I just finished 
my wife and I finished watching Midnight Mass, the new Netflix special by Mike Flanagan, who also did The Haunting of Hill House, like a really good modern horror director. And it's the same thing. It takes place on an island. You know, uh, there is a threat there, but really it's more about how order and so the social compact erodes and you have sort of anarchy and chaos. And that that's horrifying to people because people ultimately feel safe within systems. And so when you break the system down and you take away like the rule of law and we, you know, sort of get back to the jungle way of living, it's, that's terrifying to people because we're, we're used to like order and, and safety and walls and um, sort of our private space. Okay, so in our earlier uh, segment, we did uh, the Evil Dead too. We have a, a movie club. Oh, and I don't. Uh, I'm. I don't watch the scary movies, so I had a really hard time with it. But now, when you break it down that way, I see it a little bit differently. So this is interesting to me um, because I just watched Squid Game front to back, which is fundamentally what you're talking about. Is the fear doesn't come necessarily from the threat. The fear comes. I can see it now. Is that from what people are willing to do whether they are hero or failure inside the threat. So humanity becomes the fear, right? So I, I get that for the first time in my life, Greg, I've seen that oh. now, right now. <laughs> We're making a breakthrough. This here. is a breakthrough. Yeah. This is a breakthrough. <laughs> breakthrough moment. I, uh, yeah. It's amazing. This is, this is cool stuff. Okay. So for a three part question, I'll ask it all at once. Number one, okay. for people who are scaredy cats like me, can you recommend one of your books by any of the pen names that for okay. someone who might be able to step into a little bit of spooky, then of course the mm -hmm. true scary people lovers. And then for people who are looking to create, where would you tell them to get started? If that's three part is not too much. No, that's fine. Um, and I, that's, that's actually quite, quite pretty easy for me. Like the, the one I would say, like for people who just sort of want a somewhat spooky kind of um, nostalgic kind of read, it's the Saturday Night Ghost Club, mm -hmm. which is under my own name. Yeah, under That's under your name, and, yeah, Craig. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I think that that one would fit the bill perfectly. I mean, I know there's some people who have claimed to be um, a little creeped out by it, but no one's, you know, hiding under the covers. But And definitely the Nick Cutter stuff would be, I mean, I'm not, I'm not lying, Shane, when I say I, w I was surprised that some of it got published, you know, it, in terms of just like it really is pretty, like by a major publisher anyways. I might have gotten an underground press or something to publish it, mm -hmm. but I was, I was sort of shocked that Simon & Schuster wanted to publish it. So it's, it, it, that stuff would be considered, I think, even amongst the horror cognoscenti as like pretty threshold testing, okay. you know? So if you're a fan of like, again, early Cronenberg, um, uh, yeah, early Sam Raimi, mm -hmm. like in the, the Evil Dead, um, and you're sort of you're up to that kind of a challenge. I think the troop, especially, is now seen in some quarters as like, you know, let, let's graduate up to that. Mm -hmm. For me, I guess I've read so much horror that like I know where it sits on the pantheon, and I know there are there are levels to this, mm -hmm. and I know there is stuff that is much more transgressive and like soul corroding than the troop. <laughs> But I think it's all a matter of it really is all a matter of, as we've spoken, like like your immersion and what you're really willing to test yourself with. But I would say, you know, the troop and the deep are, you know, I would they're more high test. So, high so test. tread careful. One the um, one fifty one rum. Uh, what do you say yeah, to people who want to uh, who want to create but don't really know? Right. I mean, if we've because we've talked about uh, fundamentals, we've talked about character appropriate writing, we've talked about all these things. But there's one piece that has to happen: is you have to just start. And um, yeah. you're a guy who has been able to start, and now you know really almost seventeen years, twenty eighteen years since your first 
first real publishing. Yeah. That's a career now. Like you, you've, that's a career. I guess so. <laughs> so <laughs> right. Right. Kind of just look down the road and you're like, yeah, damn, that's, yeah, that's, so, a, that's a career, you know? Yeah. So you've been able to make it work. You've been able to write and live life and create a life around it. So what do you say to the people that just really, really want to create, but don't know where to go because there's all of these pieces of the puzzle. Um, what do you say to those folks? Well, you know, that's the, that's the million dollar question. I'm, I'm sure you get the question as well in terms of people wanting to enter uh, radio and, and, and now, I mean, as both of us know, I mean, we're, we're doing this on zoom. You're doing this from your house. Radio is changing. Mm-hmm. Print is changing, you know? So, so any advice I might give on uh, sort of on a practical level, I don't, I don't really know where we're going in terms. I think people will always want to hear the sort of material that you're producing and they'll want to hear the sort of material or read the sort of material that, that I'm producing and that they want to listen to radio and they, they, they want to read books. But I mean, I think that the, the, the simplest kind of guidance is, um, I, I mean, to make a career of it or to really, I mean, I, I think the main thing is to be prepared at first to, to fail. A lot. That's what, you know, every so often I'll teach a course um, just to get out of my shell and actually get out, get outside and interact with other human beings because the life of a writer can be a little sort of isolated. But and I'll tell these new writers that the main thing is, is like the one thing I'm jealous is, is you guys can fail, you know, and you have the ability to to fail, but also learn from it. There's some quote, I, I don't know if it was Edison or something that said, you know, it, he never considered he'd ever had a failure because each each one of those was inching him closer and closer towards what he considered to be the truth. And I think there's the truth of that in just any endeavor in, in, in human nature in, that we can aspire to as humans. And is that, you know, you're not going to probably be great out of the gate and that you're going to learn and you're going to go forward and you're going to fall on your face. But the good thing about starting out is you can fall on your face and ideally you learn things from it. And I miss sort of being able to fall on my face, having the sort of, leeway to do that because I would pick myself up and I would find like a paragraph out of that failure that was like, wow, this is really good. I can even acknowledge that this is good. And then the next time, maybe you get two paragraphs and then the next time you get three. And then sooner or later, you have something that is starting to look like professional, good writing. So, That's great. you know, you've got it. You've just got to kind of, yeah, maybe that was the way with your career as well. I, I mean, there must've been some hours at the white house of rock or wherever you started before that. We're like, that was not my finest hour of radio, No, but you learned something. That was just I a couple days ago, actually. <laughs> 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 yeah, I get it. You know, uh, Craig Davidson, it's, I'm going to mirror something back that you said to you. Cause I want you to hear it. Um, as you tell us about fear of failure and all those things, like just to create it. I mean, you did say to us, and I mean this as a gift to you, uh, you did say to us that you were surprised that the Nick Cutter writing actually got published. So that to me is your evidence that um, you do have the ability to create and fall down and just to try to do those things. And you can never anticipate the listening of the audience. To me, that what I hear from what you're saying is that it's so soul-filled when you mean it that if you express it not to go overly cliche with baseball movies, but if you build it, they will come. And it sounds like you've built it. I think that, well, I I think that's very true. And I don't, I don't know how you, how you handle yourself, like in terms of your, your mental preparation or, or, or when you feel like you're really in a groove on, on something. 
But uh, to me, it's like you do want to feel like your tires are skidding right on the edge of the cliff. You know, that's when it's most fun for me, mm-hmm. you know, and that's when I feel like I'm um, you're, you're, you're perched between calamity and, um, and ruin. And if, but if you can just hold the turn, then maybe you can squeeze something really interesting out of it. So that's usually when I feel like, okay, I'm, I'm running good now is when I feel like I'm on the, on the verge of collapse and failure. And sometimes the danger is that you actually do, you know, lose control and end up in the ditch. Um, but that's also the, that's, that's the fun. And to me, that's the heart of where you want to be uh, when you're, when you're really feeling, you know, the words. It's exciting stuff. Okay. So the list of books, Craig Davidson is around 15 published works. Um, I'm assuming that you're creating and working and always got things cooking in the background. Is there anything that without getting in trouble on confidentiality that you can share? <laughs> well, you know, no, uh, you know, I, I sadly, the pandemic has been not particularly kind to some of us creative types anyways. You know, I've been home with my son and homeschooling and we had a, a new baby. Um, so, so no. And I probably, for me, I've been pretty prolific for the most of my career and maybe it's time, you know, you, it wasn't a break that I wanted to have, but, mm-hmm. but I think sometimes having a break, you know, recouping mentally and sort of um, coming at whatever I do next with a sort of fresh, renewed, invigorated perspective will be great. It's fantastic. I look forward to whatever comes next. The work is great. Uh, Patrick Lustuka, Nick Cutter, and of course, uh, the real name, which is Craig Davidson. Thank you so much for sharing the insight. This is fascinating to me. And I mean it, like that was a breakthrough for me. (laughs) Well, just don't, you know, don't accept any invitations to go to, you know, some retreat uh, from someone you don't know. Yeah. Uh, and you'll be fine. Yeah. No cabins in the woods that no one's been no to. No cabins in the woods. Right. And definitely don't go in the basement and look at the arcane uh, book. <laughs> right. That glowing from the corner is not, don't leave, just leave it. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, just, just get in the car, go the other way, and then the credits will roll. Perfect. Uh, yeah, exactly. I will write the most boring, fastest, shortest horror movie ever. It's the guy who pulls up to the cabin and his friend's car is there and the doors are open, but there's nobody around and there's a strange skid mark to the front door. And instead of going inside, all I do is I leave. Roll credits. Exactly. I've always said that. If if people in horror movies acted reasonably and rationally like most of us did, every horror movie would last five minutes because they would just go, oh, I'm out of here. <laughs> Thanks so much for being so generous with your time, Craig. My pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. This is the Shift Podcast. It's a kind of a special edition here of what the hell should we watch this weekend. It's been an interesting um, uh, couple of weeks in TV land, as it always is in the fall, with new shows coming out. Let's get into it right away, because we have the AV Club coming up and the Evil Dead 2 reviews. Steve Stebbing, handsome as ever. Here he is. Thank you. Thank you. Things like this that I realized that I misplaced my coffee. <gasps> well, that's not it's the good. lifeblood. I'm sorry. We're going to have to go to commercial break. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, how you doing, Steve? How are things in uh, TV fan land? Uh, good. Yeah, things are they're they're good. Yeah, it's been. I mean, October has been a killer month for movies. I feel like I've come every week so far with like something that I've been super excited about. So. Uh, as far as like a film reviewer life goes, that is the good life right there. It's good. It's good. It's good to have things to do, man. Feel like you're in yeah. your jam. You're doing your thing. Absolutely. 
Love it. Okay, let's get started with what the hell should we watch this weekend? Steve's List in the new release category, Last Night in Soho. Do you believe in ghosts? You witnessed the murder last night, but you believe this was a vision from the past. The guy that killed her is still out there. I have to stop him. Okay. All right, Last Night in Soho, Steve Stebbing. Yeah, there is like a short list of directors that get me super excited about movies. And Edgar Wright is like one of those names at the top of the list because uh, the guy has like a perfect track record. I mean, this is the same guy that did Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, World's End, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Like he's just got perfection in his name. And uh, Last Night in Soho is him dabbling in a different genre. He's doing a horror thriller this time that harkens back to films from like the 60s and 70s, like kind of that Italian giallo type of uh, vibrant colors and everything. And he does this movie so brilliantly well. Uh, really great cast in this one. Uh, Thomas and McKenzie from Jojo Rabbit, uh, The Queen's Gambits, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, and former Doctor Who uh, Matt Smith is in this one. I just saw this movie about a couple of hours ago and loved every second of it. Just uh, as far as like I'm a cinematography guy and this movie is just just rich with it and uh, <laughs> really great editing, which sounds really nerdy when I say it out loud. Uh, that's okay. We love your nerdiness, buddy. It's all right. Um, always a fan of anybody whose name is Guillermo. This is Antlers. Something is going on with Lucas. These drawings belong to a student of mine. This is what was in the mind. It's a diabolical spirit. Excuse me, this is a myth. Well, for you, yeah. Excuse me, this is a myth. Halloween scary. Yes. More horror just to get into this uh, Halloween weekend and monster horror uh, written by Guillermo del Toro, who is one of the horror masters. Uh, he's not the guy that directed this one. This That fell to uh, Scott Cooper, who is a good director in his own right. And I mean, yeah, this is like deep evergreen woods mythological creature horror. And uh, I mean... The, the design on the the monster itself is so cool. Uh, I don't want to give too much away from this movie because even the trailers played a lot of uh, their cards close to the chest. Uh, but Carrie Russell's in this one. And I, I mean, I, I, I'm a Felicity guy, so I've loved her for a long time. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, th this movie seems to have everything going for it. OK, cool. Army of Thieves is up next. We've assembled from various sources the locations of the three saves. The Rheingold, the Valkyrie, the Siegfried. All of them are under the ownership of infamous billionaire Balai Tanaka. Any questions? No. Yes, many. Hundreds. How come it's always the billionaires that are the bad guy? Like, why can't the yeah. billionaire be the good guy who saves the day? And you know what? There's not the thing about this movie is there's not really like any kind of central villain to it. It's just kind of scattered. Uh, but this movie operates as the prequel for uh, Zack Schneider's Army of the Dead, which debuted on Netflix a few months back. 
Uh, and this uh, is basically kind of the the origin story of one of the characters in that movie, the safecracker uh, Ludwig Dieter. Uh, but this movie follows him when he's just a, a mousy barista named uh, Sebastian. Or no, he's sorry, he's a banker that loves coffee. Anyway, and I don't know, this movie would have operated better, I think, if it came out before, because you kind of know what the character's fate is going to be in in army of the dead and it's just like i don't know it just it felt a little anticlimactic uh it also has natalie uh emmanuel in this and uh as far as heist movies go she's in the ultimate ones she's in the fast and furious movies so she's already in something that did it better so all of it just feels like it doesn't hit quite the cool level that it wants to all right cool um let's get uh, let's get Suicide Squad up now. We're, we're, I don't mean to rush through these, but we want to get to our review of the horror movie in time, and we don't want to miss anything. So I feel like I'm rushing, but Steve, I'm <laughs> I'm not wasting. I'm now I'm wasting time. I wasn't wasting time, so Steve could tell more story. Here's the <laughs> damn clip, Suicide Squad. I screwed that up. Hey guys, sorry I'm late. Had to go number two. Good to know. Is this thing a dog? A dog? What kind of dog do you think it is, mate? I'm gonna go with Afghan Hound. Oh my god, is it a werewolf? Yo, they sat me next to a werewolf! Yo, let me out! He's not a werewolf, okay? He's a weasel. He's harmless. I mean, he's not harmless. He's killed 27 children, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So sad. I'm so happy you used that clip. I'm so happy you used that clip. This movie is so well written. Uh, This was done by James Gunn who uh, when he took his, we'll call it a sabbatical from uh, uh, Marvel, DC snapped him up right away to kind of do a little course correction and write the ship with their uh, Suicide Squad movie that kind of flopped a few years ago. And uh, I mean, great cast, just a brilliant script and just gore and raunchiness galore in this one because it is a hard R-rated film. Um, But the only guy that does it as good at this in superhero form is James Gunn. And he kind of brings that uh, trauma entertainment flavor that was his upbringing in the film industry uh, spattered all over this movie. And I loved it. All right. Uh, let's get one more here for sure. Matt Damon always gets me in the movies. I'm a big Matt Damon fan. This is Stillwater. She's my little girl. Daddy. Please. I'm not going to give up. It will be a serious mistake to commit a crime to prove your daughter innocent. It will not get her out of jail. And it will send you in. Lord, please keep a watchful eye on Allison. Amen. Police. Did you ask her to lie? I'm trying to get my little girl out of jail. That's all I give a damn about. Love the accent. Tell us about Stillwater. Yeah, high, a high emotional uh, dramatic thriller here. Uh, Matt Damon plays a blue-collar worker uh, that has to head to uh, Paris, France because his daughter has been accused of murder. So basically fish out a water story of a guy trying to prove uh, his, wife, uh, his daughter's uh, innocence and everything in a land that he doesn't understand. Uh, really well done movie. Uh, Tom McCarthy is the guy that directed this one. He's the one that did Spotlight uh, a few years ago. 
Um, my only thing is when, when they're doing the ad campaign, they were comparing this to or, or trying to piggyback on the Amanda Knox story, the true story about Amanda Knox, which is like kind of outlined the same type of thing. But I think it was piggybacking too heavily and it actually angered the real Amanda Knox. So kind of tainted the movie but a bit. But uh, that low bar, I think, made me enjoy this movie more. Is Liam Neeson upset that Matt Damon's trying to take a <laughs> shtick? That's really what we want to know. No, he re- he is supposedly retired from doing all that. He's like retired from doing the, uh, I'm exaggerating here, the geriatric action heroes. And it <laughs> seems if you look at it since Taken 3, he's still doing them. So did he well, He just did the ice, pr- ice road trucker one, oh. right? Which takes place in Winnipeg, like in uh, not Winnipeg, but Manitoba, northern Manitoba. And it yeah. just it hammers home on the Canadian stereotypes, the whole movie. Yeah, it's great stuff. All right. So um, let's quickly get through Star Trek Prodigy and get this one done quickly. Um, and then we're going to get to our Shift AV Club next. Steve Stebbing here. Let's hear it. There goes our exit. We're so dead. Fire the pew, pew, pew button. Ah! Pew, 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 button. Just hit them all until it goes pew, pew. Woo! We've got phasers, baby! <laughs> I've seen my share of wayward crews, and I can tell you this. You've got potential. Now, everybody should be wishing for a pew, pew, pew button. <laughs> Absolutely. Everybody needs one. Uh, and yeah, CBS All Access is milking Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek for everything that it can get, honestly. Because, I mean, we have Discovery. We had uh, the Picard series, which is entering a second season. Uh, even the animated Lower Decks. And now we have a kids animated one with Prodigy. Um, I'm excited uh, because one of my favorite captains, Captain Janeway, features in this one. Uh, Kate Mulgrew doing the voice of that. But it also has one of my favorite comedic uh, voice actors and comedians in general. Jason Mantzoukas is one of the main characters in this one, uh, who I'm just a huge fan of. And it's good to hear his voice uh, a few weeks before his show, Big Mouth, returns to Netflix. Steve Dead is his Twitter handle. Evil Dead 2 was the movie from the Shift AV Club. How well did it go over? Um, Ryan Ryan's fuming. Alrighty, so here on The Shift, Ryan O'Donnell likes to host The Shift AV Club, and we love him for it. So we've got a very Halloween special edition of The Tiny Wheel Becomes, Ryan? The Spooky Wheel. Uh Uh-oh. Yes, it is time, my friends, to gather around. Last last week, yeah, we asked that you watch Evil Dead Part 2 with us so we could review it all together. So without further ado... Let's get the reviews started, but of course, we have to bring out our dear friend, the Spooky Wheel. Spooky Wheel actually does have spooky movies. It's so terrifying. No one seems to mind. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's Give amazing. me shivers. Oh. Well done. <laughs> Thank you, Zah. Uh, yes, The Evil Dead uh, Part 2. Let's uh, let's set the scene with the original trailer from the 1980s uh, for this uh, movie. 
Four years ago, in this quiet forest, in this cozy cabin, something happened. Something so frightening. Something so deadly. Something so evil. We prayed it would never happen again. Now, from the creator of Evil Dead, comes Evil Dead 2. I, I love this movie. It's very silly. It's very over the top. Uh, it's incredibly fun. I think they had a small budget and they just wanted to create as ridiculous and silly as a movie as they could. Uh, the editing is incredibly creative. I love the transitions, the shots, the chases. I just think this is a really fun, special cult movie. And Sam Raimi, who directs all the Spider-Man movies, you can see him really flexing some of his raw creative power here. And I will end my review by saying that in the scene right after Ash cuts off his infected hand and covers mm. it, puts it in a bucket, he places a Book. bunch of books on top to trap it. Good one. One of the books is Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> I love this movie. That, one of the highlights of the show was the, the Farewell to Arms where I literally groaned and went, oh, uh-huh. God, but yeah. that's really good. Yeah, so, really okay, good. so... This movie, I watched the wrong one because I was misled by my colleagues and friends saying that there was a remake, so that remake is on Netflix, but there is a remake from 2014 on Netflix, so I wasted 20 minutes. Then I was like, I don't think this is right. So then I started watching the proper movie. I fell asleep twice. I don't like scary movies. This was an absolute waste of time. Um, This movie, I think, is just so... It's not even fun to watch i didn't enjoy it i fell asleep there's some creative moments like when the guy comes out of the mirror like that to me that's cool spooky horror right like that was amazing but maybe it was a sign of the times i mean let's just be honest all the scary ghouls desperately need a dentist the hand was a terrible rip of the adams family um the dancing lamps was like watching the beauty and the beast i mean i thoroughly absolutely did not enjoy this movie. Wow. Brendan? Okay, well, you know, I didn't think it was that bad. However, I did enjoy this movie in college, and when I was younger, this is the first time I've revisited it in almost 20 years, and I didn't enjoy it nearly as much this time. I don't know if I've just aged incorrectly or I've lost my humor, uh, but I just didn't find it nearly as... uh, I don't know, funny as I as I did before. I was taken right out of it right away. Like right when they find the, the Evil Dead book in the cave and he's got the torch mm-hmm. and everything. That is a very well-lit cave. Why does he have a torch? <laughs> like it's extremely <laughs> well-lit. And I, you know, just things like that started to really take me out of it this time around watching it. Um, and even uh, soundtrack-wise, Joseph Loduca was the composer and he did all Sam Raimi's movies. And this is very by-the-numbers kind of boring horror music. It's not that good. Steve Stebbing, Evil Dead 2. Steve Evil Dead, here he is, the man, the namesake. Yeah, I mean, let's put it on Front Street. Bruce Campbell is the greatest physical actor of our time. And him and the crew give every piece of energy they can to this movie. And they throw every ambitious thing that has never been done before 
in this movie some of the camera angles some of the dolly shots the tracking shots the push-ins like just the everything about this movie um and i mean i kept it as my namesake like this movie is so freaking special to me um and i knew i knew you guys weren't gonna like it <laughs> i knew ryan oh. was gonna like it but i knew you guys weren't gonna uh, like it. steve how many doors are in this tiny little cabin because when he goes running through the cabin i mean there's way too many doors get blown open by the way and when he goes running through the cabin he's like running through a mansion <laughs> <laughs> It's perspective is a crazy thing in this movie. And I think that they're playing with that right from the get go. But like once the Necronomicon is opened, then all bets are off. Like everything changes. Like you're, you're basically in kind of the hell mouth. So physics and, and logic don't really play anymore. All right. You still love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, mm-hmm. Ryan, oh, yeah. you're still all all in on no, it. No, of course, yeah. I I I'm I'm also okay with the fact that people don't love this movie. This is a cult classic. Mm-hmm. I don't. It's not the most. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's gonna love it, but I think that you either hate this movie or you love it. There's no real in between. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, between. The, my favorite, I guess, yes, Brendan. Actually, you do raise a good point. My favorite scene for sure is when he squishes the eyeball out and it launches straight into the girl's mouth. I lost <laughs> my mind at that part. So funny. The foreshadowing and the imagery in the book to scenes like that was pretty good. I appreciate that. All right. Uh, the Shift AV Club, a new movie for you next week. We will spin the tiny wheel. Steve Stebbing, thanks for being here, brother. Appreciate it. Happy Halloween. Of course. Happy Halloween, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.